Good morning. It, it is. Um, gosh, it's our very last day. I can't um, decide whether to applaud and cheer that we have been through 27 weeks or whether to be sad that we're going to be off for a few weeks. It kind of makes me sad. But I thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your faithfulness for studying the Word of God. And I want to, in light of your being faithful studiers of the Word of God, I just want to uh, remind all of you that the summer Bible study will be off until May the 29th and then we will begin Summer Women in the Word on Thursday night. It's only at night during the summertime. We're going to be in the small sanctuary and it starts at 7 o'clock. It's going to be uh, wear your flip-flops and your uh, shorts and we're going to have great fun summer snacks. We're going to do uh, part three of Come Follow Me. We're going to talk about contemporary Christians that have answered the call to follow Christ and how their lives have changed and what we can learn from their lives and their walk with Christ. So you're going to want to be there. The other thing we want to do as we talk about being faithful to study the Word of God is to challenge all of you to have some sort of study this summer on your own. If you're not involved in another Bible study during the summertime. I talked with Deb Haygood this week. She's our curriculum director for Women in the Word. She's the one that comes up with our topics and fleshes them out. And and that's why we're talking about disciples this year because it was Deb's idea and passion. And she suggested that I pass on to everyone a couple of suggestions for your own personal Bible study this summer. And the first one is that you might want to go through the Gospel of Luke and to pull out the women that are talked about, that Luke talks about in his gospel. Of course, he starts off with um, the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, and then he goes to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and on through the book of Luke. And so as you come to a woman in the gospel of Luke, you would just write down what you see about her in the scriptures. What observations do you make? Um, What do you see? How has she encountered Christ? What difference or changes does that make in her life and so on? So just get a little spiral notebook or a few sheets of paper and begin to look at the women in the Gospel of Luke. The other one, if you want to do something in the Old Testament, was her suggestion that you might um, do the book of Proverbs where you uh, read a chapter of Proverbs every day. If it's the first day of the month, first of May, you'd read the first chapter and so on because there are 31 chapters in Proverbs. So it works out very well. So between now and September, you would have read through Proverbs four times. And what a wise woman you would be if you spent the summer reading Proverbs. So those are our suggestions for you to be faithful in studying the Word of God. And, you know, all of us, we're so busy during the summer. We have so many things going on. But this is something that all you really have to have is your Bible and something to jot a few notes down on, and you can have your own study this summer. So those are our suggestions. We um, hope that you come to the summer study in May. We're going to finish up this week with the last 16 verses of Chapter 4 in 2 Timothy, you may want to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be reading those in just a few moments together. A man by the name of Mel Blanc was a voice actor who began his career in radio and television in the 1940s. But eventually he ended up at Warner Brothers where he had a very successful career at Warner Brothers for decades. None of us probably ever really knew his name or recognized his face at all. I looked at a picture of him, had no clue who he was. 
But all of us, particularly those of us that are slightly older, would know his voice because he was the voice of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Porky Pig and Sylvester the Cat and hundreds of Warner Brothers cartoon characters over the last four decades. Before his death in 1989, he was known as around Hollywood and throughout the world as the man of a thousand voices. And on his tombstone, his epitaph read, and if you're familiar with those characters, you'll remember what this was. His epitaph simply said, that's all, folks. And that was um, on his epitaph, which that's how his character ended every cartoon that he was his voice start in. And it was Mel Blanc's life that provided that epitaph, the words that were written on his headstone and said about him with affection after his death. And that's exactly what an epitaph is. It's a text or a, a phrase, a few short words that honor and characterize a deceased person's life. Sometimes they are inscribed on a tombstone. Sometimes they are simply said at a funeral or at a memorial service. Sometimes they're written in a biography. It's those few words, that's an epitaph, that sum up the character or the life work or the passion of the person and how they lived. As our faithful Paul closes his letter to his beloved Timothy in these last few verses that we're going to look at today, he is actually going to write his own epitaph for us. And he's going to give us some insight into how that epitaph came to be in his life. And he's going to give us some insight into how we can have our own epitaph of faithfulness. So let's read those final 16 verses beginning. We're going to begin in verse 6 of chapter 4. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get everyone here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You know, there's really no doubt in my mind, and I hope 
not in yours either, that Paul writes his epitaph and the epitaph of faithfulness in these last few verses. As he writes these words, he reveals so much to us about his heart and his thoughts and how he's desired to live since he met Christ on the road to Damascus 30 years before. He gives us right here not only the essence of his journey, but also he gives us a peek into the focus of his final few days. Paul's imminent death has actually overshadowed the whole letter to Timothy, but now we can tell he has his death in clear view. It's not out there on the horizon anymore. It's right next to him at every moment. And the tone of these last 16 verses, even in spite of the fact that his death is very up close and personal with him, his tone is still committed, it's still confident, it's still steady and focused and reflective. The first few verses that we looked at, verses 6 through 8, are actually retrospective as he looks back on his earthly life since meeting Christ. But we can tell even as he looks back, he is not melancholy about what he sees. In fact, he's confident as he looks back at his past because he is confident of his future with the Savior. He sums up his life as he looks back at the past in three ways, and he uses some of the same words that he actually used with Timothy when we looked at his encouragement to Timothy in chapter 2. First, he believes he's been a good soldier. Paul knew there was a battle to fight. He knew he was in a battle every single day of his life since he met Christ. There was a battle that took discipline, and it took focus on his commander-in-chief, And it took a great deal of courage. With everything in him, Paul has been fully in the battle as a defender of the word of God, as a defender of the gospel message, and a defender of the faith in Jesus Christ. I heard someone say, a bulldog can beat a skunk any day, but it really isn't worth the fight. (laughs) Paul knew the gospel message was worth the fight. It was worth the fight. He never believed anything less than that. And he had fought that fight every day since he met Christ. And he was going to stay in that battle. And he was going to encourage anyone that was around him, whether it was Timothy through his letters, whether it was the Roman soldier he was chained to. He was going to encourage everyone around him as a good soldier as long as he had breath. First Timothy 6.12 on your verse sheet. Let me see. I may need a verse sheet. Ah, here it is. I knew I had it somewhere. First Timothy 6.12. This is what he wrote a couple of years ago. He still believes it. He still lives it in his jail cell. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul has taken hold of that life like a bulldog, and he is not letting go. The next thing that we see in these few verses is that Paul says his life in Christ has not only been a battle, it's been a race, a race that he's had to run with diligence and commitment and some training along the way. And it's a race that he knows actually has a finish line. It has an end in sight. 
a finish line that he was only moments or hours or maybe a day or two from stepping over. Because he was confident that he had stayed in the battle, that he had been a good soldier, because he was confident that he had run the race in the best possible way that he could, he's able to say the third thing that we see here, and that is that he had kept the faith. He had never veered from God's truth. He had never walked away from the plan for his life that Christ had handed him 30 years before on the road to Damascus. He had carefully guarded the truth that Christ had entrusted to him that day. 1 Corinthians 4.2, this is Paul writing, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Paul knew the trust that had been given to him on that day, and he had done everything in his power to prove faithful to that trust. He's been a faithful steward of the gospel message that Christ had given him so many years ago. And in these last days of his life, and probably these are going to be the most difficult days of his life, these last few, he has no plans to give up being a good steward at this date. He has no plans to leave the race or lay down the fight. Remember our definition of faithfulness from week one is a steadfast allegiance and an unswerving loyalty to the message and cause of Christ. As a good soldier, as a trained and committed athlete, and as a steward of the truth, Paul has written his own epitaph in verse 7 because he's lived it out in the last 30 years. He has fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. James Dobson writes about a man by the name of Clarence Jordan who had two PhDs. One of his PhDs was in New Testament Greek and the other one was in agriculture. And in 1940s, he started a farm outside of America's Georgia for poor white families and poor black families to come and live on and begin to make some sort of living for themselves. Now, you can only imagine that in the South in the 1940s, a farm uh, where blacks and whites lived together and worked together and prospered together was not a very popular idea in America's Georgia. And after a visit from the Ku Klux Klan one night that left every single building on the farm burned and left Dr. Jordan's house riddled with bullets and ran off every family except one poor black family, a newspaper reporter showed up that morning knowing, of course, what had happened the night before to um, write the story of the farm's demise, of the farm's closing. And he found Dr. Jordan actually out in the field with a hoe, simply hoeing in the cotton field. And he asked him in a kind of a haughty voice, he said, Dr. Jordan, you have two of them PhDs and you've put 14 years into this farm and now there's nothing left of it. Just how successful do you think you've been? And it was only then that Clarence Jordan stopped towing and he looked that reporter straight in the eye and he said, well, I'd say I'd been about as successful as the cross. I don't think you understand us, sir. What we are about is not success. We are about nothing but faithfulness. And as Paul looks back on his life in verses 6 through 8 and then forward to those few final days in verses 9 through 22, it is clear that he has never been about success, that he has been about a lifetime of faithfulness, a lifetime that has written its own epitaph that he tells us in verse 7. Paul would applaud Clarence Jordan's words 
And he says to Timothy, and he says to us in these last 16 verses, simply be as successful as the cross, Timothy. Simply be as successful as the cross. Live your life so that you write your own epitaph of faithfulness. And in these last few words, he gives us some great insight, just a few final nuggets on how he has written that epitaph of faithfulness day by day by day, um, how he's lived a life that warrants such an epitaph, how to simply be day in and day out faithful until you've written your own epitaph. <coughs> and the first insight he gives us into how we write an epitaph of faithfulness is in... <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to have to turn this off. The first insight he gives us into how to write that epitaph of faithfulness is actually in verse 6, where we learn that such a life, a life that has that ending to it, is actually going to involve sacrifice. Sacrifice. According to Jewish law, when the priest sacrificed, whether it was the ram or the bull or the lamb on the altar of sacrifice, he actually poured I think it was called a hen of wine, which is about a quart of wine, onto the altar. And that was the last act in the sacrificial worship. Numbers 28, which was on your uh, homework, hopefully you read it, but let's read it again. It says, prepare one lamb in the morning and the other at twilight together with a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil from pressed olives. This is a regular burnt offering instituted at Mount Sinai as a pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. The accompanying drink offering is to be a quarter of a hen of fermented drink with each lamb. Pour out the drink offering to the Lord at the sanctuary. Ever since Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, and Jesus was the sacrificial lamb of God, he has not counted his life his own. He uses the example of the drink offering here in verse 6 as a word picture, a word picture so we will understand that his life has been given to Christ ounce by ounce by ounce. Thank you. Don't tell anyone. I've got drink in the sanctuary. I appreciate that, Linda. Paul has always wanted more of Christ and less of him. And as he poured himself out for the gospel message, day by day by day, that's exactly what happened. Every single day, he poured out a little bit more of Paul so that he could have a lot more of Christ. J. Vernon McGee writes that in the Old Testament times, the drink offering was actually poured on the altar of sacrifice while the hot coals were still sizzling. And consequently, he said, the wine as it was poured onto the sacrifice would actually evaporate so that it would just be a mist, a waft of um, aroma as it went up to the Lord. And there would be nothing left except the sacrifice himself. You know, Paul's life was soon going to be gone. It was going to be completely poured out, and it was going to be evaporated by the fire of his own faithfulness, and nothing was going to be left, which is exactly what Paul wanted. Nothing was going to be left of Christ, of his life except Christ himself. Paul writes this in Romans 12, verse 1. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of spiritual worship. You know, the definition of a sacrifice is actually something given up or surrendered for the sake of something else. And Paul has given up his life for the sake of Christ. Fortunately for us, we are not living in a country where persecution of Christians results in their death. But Paul and Timothy were, and certainly there are believers today around the world that live in that situation where sacrificing their life means being persecuted to death. For us, sacrificing our life is going to look more like um, giving up our selfish natures pouring out our own earthly plans on the altar of sacrifice for the plans of the Lord in our life. Having an epitaph of faithfulness in our lives is going to mean that we're going to offer our whole selves every day. We're going to offer our hearts, we're going to offer our minds, and we're going to offer our wills, all for the cause of Christ. This is what John the Baptist said in John, the book of John, verse 330. John the Baptist said, He must become greater, meaning Christ. I must become less. I know Paul felt that deep in his heart. The next thing that Paul shares with us is that an epitaph of faithfulness is simply going to involve hard work. There's no way around that. Hard work. An epitaph of faithfulness is going to be hard work. There is no soldier that fights in a battle or no athlete that runs a marathon that chooses that life because they think it'll be easy. You know what? I think if I'm a soldier or an athlete, I'm just going to lay around all day every day and have a little chocolate and keep my feet up. And, you know, no one chooses being a soldier or an athlete because it's going to be easy. They both involve a lot of sweat. They both involve a lot of pain. But those who work hard eventually succeed in the battle and win the race. Thomas Edison said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And I can see Paul shaking his head in agreement when it comes to faithfulness. Paul would be saying to all of us, you know, part of faithfulness is certainly God's grace and mercy and blessing in our life. But you know what, ladies? Much of faithfulness is simply hard work. Ask any um, Christian speaker, if you ask any of our pastors that preach on Sunday morning, if you ask a missionary or a Christian author um, how they wrote the book or how they prepared to get up here and preach on Sunday morning or how they shared the gospel over and over and over again, they would tell you the same thing, God's grace and hard work. In fact, if you ask your small group leader who's been here faithfully every single week for 27 weeks, who's prepared their lesson very diligently, who's made the phone calls, who've gone to all the leadership training uh, things that we've asked them to do, how they accomplish that, most of them would probably say, God's grace and hard work. It's hard work to be faithful in life. Matthew 9, 27, and this is Jesus saying this to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. A life of faithfulness is going to require workers in order for the harvest to be accomplished. Paul's next insight that we see in these verses into his epitaph of faithfulness is that an epitaph of faithfulness is going to require that we finish strong. That we finish strong. It means that we never 
stop short of the finish line. We never stop because the finish line is too far away. And we never stop because it's just a few steps and we think we've gone as far as we really need to go. It means that we keep on going. An epitaph of faithfulness means that we keep on going until either we go to be with Jesus or he comes back to be with us. Unfortunately, finishing strong is not really a um, big value in our culture today. We're a culture that really wants a break. We're a culture that wants to sit down and rest because we've had a lifetime of stress, because we've already raised our kids, because we've finished our career path, whatever that might be. And I'm including myself in this. I really want to sit on the sidelines for a while and just think about me. What is it? uh, How can I pour into me? It's really all about me when I take a break. We want to stop and focus on ourselves. And actually, there's nothing wrong with resting when you're exhausted and tired, no matter what your labor is. And there's nothing wrong with completing a season of your life, like finishing a career or raising your children. But the key is, what do you do next? Do you move on or do you stop? Paul's example here for us in these final verses is that even as he literally listens for the executioner's footsteps outside of his jail cell, he is not sitting on the sidelines taking a break in his life of faithfulness. He is not thinking, you know what, it's time I just thought about Paul. It's time I just took for myself. He is continuing the work that Christ handed him 30 years before. Look at verse 9. Look back at verse 9. He says, Timothy, do everything you can to get here. And I want you to come with my scrolls. Come with my parchments. Come with my work so that I can keep studying and writing and sharing the gospel up until they take me out of this cell and put my head on that chopping block. He says, Timothy, bring Mark to me because I need him in my ministry. He doesn't say, you know, Mark was really good for me in the past in my ministry, but I don't need him anymore because my ministry's over. He's talking present tense here in the Greek. He's saying, Mark is used in my ministry now and I need him. As the finish line nears, it's so interesting to me, instead of sitting down and thinking about himself, Paul actually picks up the pace. He kind of says to Timothy, you can hear the urgency in his voice. He says, come on, come on, get here before winter because I don't know how much longer I'll be in this jail cell. And he never says, I'm too old to be used by Christ. He never says, I'm too close to the finish line to be used. And he certainly doesn't say, I'm defeated and I give up. Paul shares with us, uh, as we talk about finishing strong, he shares with us, I think, a couple of valuable secrets to finishing strong in these texts. Just little nuggets that he's buried in here for us that I want us to talk about briefly. And the first secret to finishing strong here, I think, is that just like any athlete who goes the distance, Paul does not focus on the hardship or the pain or the weariness that he himself is experiencing. He's not whining and grumbling. Instead of focusing on any hardship or pain or weariness, he is having, as he finishes the race, 
Instead, he focuses on the prize that the winner is going to receive. And he knows that there's going to be a prize. There's absolutely no doubt in his voice. In fact, I think you can almost hear the excitement in his voice as he writes this in the text in verse 8. As he says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. With every step, Paul is excitedly looking forward to the prize, to the crown that he knows without a doubt is going to be his. You know, the Tour de France is probably the most grueling of all cycling races. I didn't actually realize it was this long, but it is 2,000 miles of France's most difficult mountainous uh, terrain that they ride over in the Tour de France. And there was a National Geographic article in which one of the uh, participants, a man by the name of Gilbert LaSalle, described it as an annual madness. And I would have to agree with him, anyone that wants to ride 2,000 miles in a summer on a bicycle... Um, But the prize that motivates those top cyclists to be part of that annual madness, and they have to train at least 22,000 miles a year in order to enter the race and have any hope of finishing at all. But the prize that they keep their eyes on so that they do all of that is simply the famous Tour de France jersey that the winner gets at the end. That's all they receive. So if grown men will go to such lengths for a simple sports jersey, how much more, Paul tells us, should we be willing to go to be handed a crown of righteousness by Christ himself? Paul gets it. Paul gets how great a day it is going to be when he stands there with Christ and receives that crown of righteousness from the Savior himself. And he has his eyes firmly fixed on that moment. He's not thinking about the executioner that's going to be outside his jail any longer. He's not thinking about the conditions he's living in right then. He's thinking about that prize. There's a discussion actually among theologians, this is just a little aside, there's a discussion among theologians about whether this prize Paul is thinking of is a metaphorical crown or a literal crown. Um, And some people believe one thing and some people believe another. There's really no way to tell. Some people, uh, theologians, believe it it is metaphorical. In other words, it's simply the experience of full and complete righteousness that we are eventually going to have when we stand in the presence of Christ clothed in his righteousness instead of our own sinful natures. But others believe that it might be um, a literal crown, a literal laurel wreath type of reward that we receive for righteousness that we have lived out through the power of Christ here on this earth. But whatever it is, Paul doesn't really care. He keeps his eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and the prize that is his, and that's what motivates Paul to keep going, motivates him to finish strong. Hebrews 12.2 on your verse sheet says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The second secret Paul shares for us in finishing strong, one I think will be so key, was key in his life and it's key in all of us that want an epitaph is faithfulness, is in actually in verses 
14 and 16, and that is that Paul keeps short accounts. He has forgiven those who have harmed him, and Paul is expending absolutely no energy, not one drop of energy on anything but faithfully crossing the finish line. He's not going to expend any energy on carrying a grudge. He's not going to expend any energy on bitterness or anger or payback or any of those things that we find ourselves becoming sidetracked with in our journey of faithfulness. He's simply going to let the Lord deal with Alexander the metalwork, despite the fact that he has truly done him a great harm. There are many that believe that it was Alexander that actually caused Paul to be imprisoned, which is going to lead to his death. And in the case of those who had deserted him, and I think this is so precious, in the case of those who had deserted him, in his faithfulness, Paul even understands and forgives their unfaithfulness, according to verse 16. Unforgiveness and the baggage of anger and bitterness, a retribution and revenge, are not going to trip Paul up and keep him from finishing strong. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. At the height of World War II, Protestant theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in a German prison for taking a stand against Hitler. And yet, even from his prison cell, Bonhoeffer, who was an incredible man who was eventually executed for his faith, even from his prison cell, he began to uh, continue to urge believers to resist the tyranny of Nazi Germany. Now, there was a group of Christians that knew Bonhoeffer, um, and they believed that Hitler was the Antichrist. And they went to Bonhoeffer and they said to him, why are you exposing yourself to all this danger and suffering? Since Hitler's the Antichrist, we know that Jesus is coming back any day now. So all of this suffering and danger you're putting you through and putting your family through is going to be for nothing when Christ returns. And Bonhoeffer said this to them, If Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I'll rest. But today I have work to do. I must continue the struggle until it's finished. Paul and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were cut from the same cloth of faithfulness. Paul, chained in a jail cell, awaiting his own execution, has work to do. And nothing was going to stop him except the very presence of Christ himself. In chains or not, Paul was going to finish strong. Mel Blanc, the voice actor that we talked about a few minutes ago when we began, uh, who spoke life to many cartoon characters over his career, had a famous voice. It was famous to millions of us. And when he left this world, his epitaph was just, that's all, folks. That was what characterized the life of Mel Blanc. That's all, folks. Paul is also a man with a voice that impacted millions, not because he, um, we heard him speak it or he gave life to cartoon characters, but because it's his voice through the words of Timothy, through his words to Timothy, and through his words to us, through his own story where he has written his own epitaph of faithfulness, um, he has written an epitaph for everyone 
who holds a steadfast allegiance to the gospel message and the cause of Christ. It is this epitaph of faithfulness written by Paul that not only characterized his lifetime of work, but Paul wants that same epitaph of faithfulness to characterize Timothy's life. And that's why he wants him to come, and that's why he continues writing. And Paul wants that same epitaph of faithfulness to characterize each and every one of our lives. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the the faith. That is Paul's voice to us. And that's what he's leaving us as an epitaph of faithfulness for all believers. You know, no one really knows how much longer Paul lived after he put his pen down from writing these final words to Timothy. And nobody knows whether Timothy and Mark actually made it to Rome before Paul was executed in the fall of 67 AD. There was one author I read that um, had done a lot of research, and he really believed and speculated that um, Luke and probably Timothy and Mark, if they made it at time, set outside the holding cell where Paul was put the night before his execution, that it had a very small window, and that Luke and um, Timothy and Mark sat out there and talked to him all night long. They didn't cry and they didn't weep. What they did was they sang hymns, and they talked about the next day Paul would meet the Savior and how exciting that was going to be. Paul was faithful to his last breath, And his life completely resembled the epitaph of faithfulness he has left for us. These are Paul's words in Philippians 1, 21 and 22. He says this, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I think Paul would want, as we finish our series on 2 Timothy, each of us to consider the questions that are on the bottom of your outline. I think he wants us to think about our epitaph, our epitaph of faithfulness. He wants us to write out our own epitaph of faithfulness. He shared his epitaph with us and with Timothy, so it would be a model to us, a model of faithfulness to spur us on to fight the good fight to finish the race, and to keep the faith. So I'd love to challenge you, and you've got the summer to think about this, uh, to consider what you want your epitaph of faithfulness to be as a believer. At the end of your life, what words do you want people to put to your life? Not simply as... uh, Because... uh, uh, There'll be people that know you as a friend and as a mother and as a sister and a family member, all of those things. But what words do you want them to remember your Christian faith by? What do you want them to say about you as a believer? And you know what that really is? That's how we write a personal mission statement, is we go to the end and think, what do we want it to have looked like? So I want to challenge you to pray about it and to think about it and to begin to write your epitaph in the form of a personal mission statement this summer. And then after you have your epitaph or your mission statement in mind, think about if there are any changes in your life that you need to make so that you can be confident that this is the right epitaph that people will be saying at the end of your life. What areas do you need to be more faithful in? And we all have them. What areas do you need to be accountable in? And again, we all have them. What areas do you need to own and live the truth more in in your life?
write them down. And then, day by day, simply make your changes and walk steadfastly and faithfully toward realizing your epitaph. And don't be overwhelmed because our epitaphs, just like Paul's, will be realized one faithful day at a time. Instead of closing in prayer today, the music team's going to come and I have a song that I really want.